Hi guys, this is Ryan, and on behalf of Harry, James and myself, welcome to the Coaches Room, where we speak to coaches around the world and hold discussions about the game we love. You can also find this episode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Anchor. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the Coaches Room. This is episode four. Um, Today we have Griff, Courtney and Graham with us. And before we get started, uh, welcome guys. It's, it's tremendous to have another three people, three coaches from different areas, different backgrounds on here today. Uh, just before we get started, could you just give us a little bit of information about yourselves, what age group you're coaching currently, um, what, what ambitions you might have and what you're trying to get out of coaching. So, Griff, if you want to start us off. Yeah, sure, mate. Um, so, yeah, nicknamed uh, Griff, uh, a Welshman that's sort of come into England through being in the army. I've been in the army 18 years now um, and, and parallel to that, I've just been plugging away at trying to become uh, a half decent coach. Uh, I'm currently working uh, with Yeovil Town Academy in the youth development phase. So the 13s lead, but I also uh, help out with the 14s and also 16s, I've done a bit with the 18s as well. Uh, I'm the, the British Army under 23s head coach. Uh, FA coach mentor for the Wiltshire area and I've just started doing a bit more private stuff uh, as more of a technical coach so uh, that's pretty much what I'm doing right now uh, where I want to be is is leaving the army in a few years time working in football full-time in what job role or what capacity I don't know yet um, but it's definitely something that I want to do full-time. Awesome cheers Griff appreciate that. Courtney? Um, I'm Courtney. Um, I've got my own professional football coaching business called Developer Game um, that specialises in girls football within the foundation and youth development phase. Um, I also volunteer at Blythetown FC and I am the head coach of the ladies there um, and the head coach of the under eights and I stopped my UEFA B this season. Um, similar to uh, Griff, I'm, I'm looking to be in football full time as well, hopefully post UEFA B. Awesome, awesome. Cheers, Courtney. And Graham, last one late. Yeah, um, background, um, I work with the with the FAI, um, it was the, the association here in Ireland. Um, that's my full-time job as a development officer, so I am full-time um, in the game. I'm also Shelbourne under-19 manager. Um, so Shelbourne would be professional club in a national league in Ireland, so I would be under-19 manager there. Um, I'm there three years at the moment um, I would have started off coaching quite early so I'm coaching maybe maybe like everyone else since I'm 16 um, so I'm like 10 11 years or so um, from an ambitious point of view as much as I'm working full time in Ireland um, my ambition is to work in the UK whether that's under 18 manager under 23 manager it's, uh, it's something that I'm kind of working towards at this moment in time Awesome. Cheers, Graham. I just want to say, before we get started on the questions and the debate, I really appreciate you guys um, taking the time to, to be here today with us and also sharing your opinions and you just giving a little bit of value to people that might be listening to it. It might be 10, it might be 50, it might be 20, it might be 100 people that, that get to listen to this, but even if you can you know, help one person per day, as they say, or one person per week or 10 people per week, it's definitely worth it. So, um, Ryan... If you want to start us off with the first question, and then we'll 
we'll try and enter a debate on each one of the, the three topics that we've got today. Yeah, definitely. So as a coach at Preston North End, um, we obviously have loads of opportunities to go through CPD, which stands for Continued Professional Development. So it's, you know, people coming from the FA, whether it's, you know, mentor tutors or, you know, the head of phase coaching at the FA where they come in and they deliver, you know, sessions and ideas for us and new new developing ideas that the FA have got. But the kind of question that I'm, I'm kind of direction, I'm kind of pushing it down is, is it, the sessions that they deliver, they have, you know, the exact numbers they need, you know, they've got the exact facilities that they need. Is it a realistic environment or is it the ideal world that they're delivering in? Right. I'll start, I'll start us off. I believe, um, obviously CPD is slightly different. I was, um, I did FA one and two in the UK and then I did my BNA in Spain. CPD here doesn't exactly exist um, as such. We, we do have to um, attend to certain, I would say, like seminars and presentations and you know, keep everything up to date. But I, I believe that the CPD in the UK is slightly different, if I'm not mistaken. They do um, offer like videos and you can see it online. Is that correct? Yeah, they've got, they've got stuff like you're saying where you can do web, uh, webinars and seminars and that kind of stuff and presentations, but there's a lot of where people from the FA will come out and, and you know, deliver a session to, to the Preston coaches and you know, give them ideas and, and different methods of coaching. So, so really what you're trying to say with it is, is it kind of like very um, dust up, like the, 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 the YouTube videos they send or the CPD, is it very yeah, so kind of like St. Yeah, George's so they, Park orientated and stuff like that? They kind of, they come in and they can say, you know, we've got, I need 25 players over four different pitches and they know they can have them numbers, whereas we turn up and we don't know, you know, on a Sunday league, you turn up and you don't know how many players you're going to have. You know, if, you, if your pitch has been wrecked by kids playing on it through the week or, you know, have you even got any goals? You know, little stuff like that. You know, it's, I, was, I was really surprised. I had a professional coach, a professional player. I'm not going to mention who it was um, at La Manga Club. And um, funny enough, we had 16 kids and he wanted to work in three so, um, funny or not, he came over and, um, and said to me, like, Harry, you know, I only want 15. I'm kind of like, well, I'm with a group of under 16-year-olds, you know, I can't kind of like leave one out. Um, could, you, could you make it happen? Two coaches would join in. He's like, no, I need 15. And I think it's the, the little capacity to adapt to the circumstances that maybe grassroots coaches have to deal with. Um, yeah. Like a lot of the times, I don't know, you guys... Um, Griff, you work with different age groups as well, with the senior levels as well. Is it a common trait, the fact that, you know, um, players doesn't, don't turn up and you have to deal with, with this situation on a daily basis, that you have to adapt to the session rather than having, you know, the ideal session planned? Do you then have to adapt? Is it a common trait with you guys or is it something that you always end up turning up with the same amount of players than you expect? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a challenge for, for all of us, isn't it? And all coaches at grassroots. Um, all through the age groups, academy level, you you could have a player drop out at the last minute. You know, maybe not being able to get to training or falls ill at the last minute. So I think that's that's part of being a good coach. I think being able to adapt. So your example there, where uh, the coach wanted fifteen, but you know you've you've got sixteen, so he's got no choice to uh, adapt. If if you weren't on hand to give him another coach or another player, then what would he do? Uh, would he make one player sit out? 
no, he wouldn't. He, he, he'd have to adapt. So I think it's, it is part of the skill. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, sorry, Griff, he would. He would, he would literally probably just let him sit out. He, yeah. he wouldn't care. Well, and that, you know, that, 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 you know, look at the development effect that that would have on that one player that may have to sit out. But going back to the original question, I think, I think you're exactly uh, right, Ryan, that it, it can be staged too much where it looks great, doesn't it? 16 players and they have the best 8v8 on the best size pitch where reality is, is that we don't know if we've got 11 players and it might be odd and it, it, it might not be to plan and you might be kicked off the third and you've now got a quarter of, of an Astro um, and you might have two goals taken off you and you have to adapt with the equipment you've got. So I absolutely agree that it can be staged at times, but what I have seen done, delivered really well and I attended a recent um, uh, the UEFA convention with Wales and what I liked about that was that it was uh, two or three days where in Wales they have to revalidate, which we already spoke about. Um, but the sessions were delivered, so we had some top people come in, uh, Patrick Vieira being one of them, and, and he delivered a session. And instead of it, yes, he had the, he had the Wales under the 17s and he, he probably knew how much players he had, etc. But what we did after that is we all got in discussion groups and we discussed how it would work better, um, what would we do if we had less numbers? What would we do if we had 22 players? So we were able to think along the lines of, of, of a real coach and how we would adapt with our squads and our numbers and maybe our age groups as well. So, um, yeah, I think, I think at times it can be um, sort of unrealistic, but um, I think some people are doing it the right way where they are factoring in for the real-life grassroots coach or, or any level coach. Yeah, I kind of I agree with that. I agree with that. Courtney, I want to hear Courtney, Ryan. Courtney hasn't, hasn't said anything yet. Come on, Courtney. Um, so just just going back to the um, like the original the original question. So I've been quite blessed over this season, I think, with my CPD because um, I was invited onto a coach transition program to sort of bridge the gap between my level two and my UFB, um, just with it being quite close together. Um, and that's sort of given me quite a lot of opportunity as it's opened up new doors uh, through networking, which is hopefully then going to give me the stepping stones I need to be able to coach full time. Um, and I think continuously trying to develop yourself as a coach has much more of a positive impact on your players. Interesting. Right, sorry I interrupted you there. You can have the word rack again. <laughs> no, no, I was, I was, I was going to kind of open it up to the floor. Yeah, what, what does everyone else kind of think? Um, fire away with some ideas and opinions, guys. That's kind of what was, the angle I was going at. Look, I think, I think from, from my perspective, in, in not just in Ireland, I think generally from a culture perspective, and especially working with grassroots, I think one of probably the main traits you need to have as a coach is that adaptability. Um, because I'm not sure what, what the situation will be in the UK, but especially in Ireland where the kids could be playing a various number of different sports. So you, they could be, your training session could clash with, say, GEA or swimming or rugby. So I think, I think coaches, coaches want to work in the ideal world and the ideal scenario, but it's not realistic in the environment that they're in so I think being able to adapt on the ground and being able to adapt in two seconds I think makes the sessions 
flow. So I think having that plan B, whether you're planning for 16 players and 14 show up, well, can you still implement that training session and reach your objectives with them less numbers? So I think it's the big thing for me around grassroots coaches is, is, is actually putting the time and effort into plan um, for these scenarios where a kid might be sick or a kid could come in late or whatever the case may be. But just having that adaptability to be able to think quickly and having plan B ready to go, I think is probably the most important. Yeah, I think I think you kind of t- tapped into it quite nicely there, Graham. Mm-hmm. Just, a, just a question to kind of everyone. What, if you're, say, if you're going to a CPD event, what are you looking to take away from it? Because like, like, like it's mentioned in the question there, is it always a realistic environment where you can translate it back to your environment or is it the ideal world? What's everyone's kind of, when they go in there, what are they looking to try to take from it? I think the benefit for me of CPD is that you go into a topic that you might not be uh, as well skilled at. So uh, let's say I'm an outfield coach and there's a, there's a module on goalkeeping. It's something I need to know. I need to become good at. So um, I'm getting somebody who knows a lot more about goalkeeping, tell me more stuff about goalkeeping that I can help my players. So um, I find that the biggest, the biggest area of benefit for me is that I get, I get more information on things that I don't necessarily touch on as much. So CPD events that I may have done and, and you guys are the same with whether it's analysis, maybe a defending section, finish the attack, uh, goalkeeping. And it's just areas that you think, I, I didn't think, I didn't think too much about that. And then it, it, it highlights you that where you need to improve and what, what you need to know more about to be a, a sort of, more rounded coach but also sometimes as well it, it it does remind you what you do know as well so sometimes you go on there and you see a top coach tell you stuff and you think well yeah I'm doing that so it does it brings you back in line and uh and I think there's there is many benefits of CPD and I think um to sort of summarize that it's just to check in on where you are and where, where you need to upskill I think it makes you more accountable as well um, with your coaching because obviously like you expect your players to come and train hard week in, week out. But the way I look at it is, is I can't expect that from them if I'm not expecting it from myself. So I think like a massive benefit of CPD is that you're showing your players that you're working hard for them, not just them working hard for you and the team, um, which I think is a massive benefit for, of it. I think, uh, Courtney, we were on our level two together and one of the main yeah. things I took from it was the tutors are always talking about trade-offs. So there's ideal things and then there's realistic things that kind of let go of one aisle to make up. And I think it's the same with CPD. For all the benefits of kind of what we get out from it, which is like networking with new other coaches who like Griff says might be in a different area to you. And you've got to kind of have that trade-off and think, well, it's not the most realistic thing. I'm not going to have the best of the best players. I'm not going to have the best numbers, but what we're getting out of it, I think, is a lot more than what we what kind of ex- expect going into it. I think it's really good to get on board with, personally. And uh, just on that, I think it is a bit of a false environment. So when we do our coaching courses, we might have a group of 20 adults, but then we're going back to work with under sevens. That's another one of them trade-offs where we kind of need to, because we can't really coach adults as though we would with our young players 
but we've got to kind of do the best we can. And it's that trade off again of that realistic aspect kind of gone, but we'll do our best. I definitely think that obviously, like between everybody that you said, I think the main thing is, is, is I think Graham touched on it before, is just having the capacity to adapt. You need to be very certain on, on what you have in your mind and have your thoughts very, very clear. But at the same time, all these CPD events can always, you know, touch on certain aspects that you might not recall um, having updated. And it always takes you to that, you know, just rehearse of everything that you have, everybody, everything that you establish, everything that you do to a day, on a day-to-day -day basis. Do you have up-to-date? Are you, Chris touched on it before, are you able also to listen about other areas that you might not be, you know, great at, but there's there's somebody there that can help you and just get you started in, in, in understanding the basics of each area, which at the end of the day, we can't have a staff of, of 10 or eight people. It's just us on our own and maybe one that helping out, or you might have the opportunity to have one, two or three staff, but still you've got to divide and delegate in all areas. And if you don't know about an area, it's very difficult to get, um, get to that to that level and, and, and get to the same balance of expectation that you, you want if you don't know anything about that area. So knowing about all the different areas is certainly important and having a basic knowledge upon all of them is 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 the, a need for every single coach, you know. I mean I think Johan Cruyff used to say it, he says, I don't want to do the fitness sessions, I want the fitness coach to do the fitness sessions, but I need to know at least the basics of um, you know, I just want them to be at hundred percent. But I need to know the basics of, of getting there, you know? And if I don't know the basics, I don't know what he's doing, I can't be a part of the training session. And I think Courtney touched on it before. If, if the coach doesn't know about it, then the players feel, you know, that why, why should I put in an effort if you're not willing to put in the effort to know the basics? Awesome. That's good. Um, I think we covered just most on, areas Just on that. that point. Yeah, I just think on that point, and it's probably, I think we've all touched on it. Look, and I think I'll probably refer it back to CPD for me comes down to you, your characteristics as a, as a coach. It's are you actually open minded enough to evolve and learn and and take on different knowledge around it, the different areas. So just because you're a manager or a coach, like like everyone has has kind of clarified, like you still need to know specific stuff around goalkeeping, specific stuff around performance analysis, diet nutrition. But I think. The coaches that are fixed-minded and that they think know it all, they, they're the ones that, for me, over time will kind of go out again. Where I think young, enthusiastic coaches that want to evolve, they want to learn. Um, I think Courtney mentioned around networking. Look, I think for me, that's probably the best learning environment where you've got a group of coaches that are bringing across their thoughts on, on various aspects, aspects of the game. But I think... Going back to what, what Harry said around wanting to learn and wanting to have that knowledge, like you mentioned Johan Cruyff's scenario there, where obviously if you've got specific staff uh, in place, whether it's strength conditioning coach, whether it's performance analysis, you obviously delegate them roles to, to your staff, but you still need to be on top of them and you need to know, well, why is my strength conditioning coach doing a certain thing? So then you can see the benefits from, from everywhere. And how it can relate to my philosophy and how it can relate to the tactic style that we've, we've all agreed on. It's all linked, or it all should be linked, really, yeah. every area of the game. Yeah. Can I, can I ask a 
just kind of an open question to everyone. What if would you prefer as a coach to be kind of have a basic knowledge in everything, or like you're saying with the diet, nutrition, the fitness, the psychology, the medic, the medicine side of the game, or would you have, or would you prefer to be a, almost a pillar in one specific area of coaching? Just kind of open it up to everyone. I think I think Ryan just on that. Uh, for me, I think maybe the environment uh, maybe determines that. So if I'm if I'm an under eighteen coach or I'm working at Preston under twenty trees, well, I've got all that support network around me yeah. to then delegate to the sports science staff to delegate to the performance analysis staff. Now again, we go back to the ideal world. That's exactly for me what that is, but. We, not all coaches work in the ideal world. So my thoughts is, I think we need to have knowledge of a lot of aspects across the game. So rather than just neglecting, and I'd be passionate on diet, nutrition, strength, conditioning, because if we neglect them things, football for me will, will always be there and players will always improve because they're training and playing every day. But I think if we don't look after off-the-field stuff, well, then I don't think players will reach the potential that they actually have. Yeah. Courtney, what do you think? Um, I agree. So I'm obviously on the opposite side of that. Um, so I don't have any support. So for me, I like to have uh, the basic grasps of like the other three corners, especially uh, like football and mindset, because that's massive in women's football and it plays a massive part in performance. Um, so I like to have sort of like a basic knowledge of, of all areas but then maybe a little bit more in-depth knowledge in regards to like the tactical stuff. Um, but I think when you have a team around you, that is an ideal world. Um, so it's how much you can sort of give to a voluntary role is quite difficult. Yeah, definitely. I, I completely agree with that. Um, Griff, what do you think? Yeah, I think I agree. And they're, they're both great points there. But um, one thing I was going to say was, some of my best CPD have been away from football. So it's just trying to make me a better person. So uh, I reached out to CPD from uh, an Olympic champion rower, female rower, and she she spoke about the power of feedback um, and just how she had, how she used feedback every time to improve. And, and it helped me understand feedback, one, as a coach, and obviously giving feedback uh, as a coach to a player. Um, another one, a, a top hostage negotiator. So he spoke about the importance of building up a relationship really quickly. Obviously, you can imagine his situation when somebody's uh, about to jump off a three-story building. He has to build up relationships really quickly. And it's just stuff like it, that. that's so apparent to us as coaches. We might get a player in and that first impression lasts. You know, you never get a second chance at first impression. So uh, as much as... I'm going off a little bit on on the, the recent topic, but what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that the best CPD isn't always well the best defending CPD or the goalkeeping module. Um, it, it's also go and reach out and find ways to make you a better a better coach, a better manager, um, and, and look at your people skills because you might know everything about football, but if you can't manage players, then you're pretty useless, in in my view. That links to what you've been seeing the past few weeks, Harry, doesn't it? You've been watching documentaries on tennis, on stuff like that, and it's all terrible, isn't it, really? I think the social it's, I think side it's, of it and the mental side. 
Yeah, I mean, I think self-reflection and self-awareness is key. You need to know what you're good at and you need to know what you're not good at. I think it's, it's equally important to understand, you know, I don't dominate this area. I get loads of players ask me about physical conditioning and strength conditioning and how they can become, you know, better players in the, you know, in the physical area. And I'm like, don't ask me. I'm not, I'm not the person that you should be asking. You should get in touch with somebody who's specific in the area. You know, at the same time, I want to be strong and in certain areas because I believe that that's what I'm strong at and that's where I get my results and that's where I get my success. Um, like building relationships and stuff like this. So in each area, I think it's really important, like Gris said before, one is to give feedback to yourself, ask yourself the right questions. Two, ask other opinions from other people. Three, try and see and read reactions and identify the problems that might be occurring from the outside, not always just within the area and the circle that you're always in. And then I've written down the, the capacity as well to understand what you're good at. And I'm going to flip this in a player perspective. We know Messi not because of his pressing, not because of his tackling, not because of, you know, his crossing into the box. We know him for one, two, three, four, five attributes that he's really, 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 really good at. You know, if we, if we took it down and we said that, you know, from one to 10, we're going to define all, all Messi's physical, mental and technical attributes, there's going to be a few twos in there. And there's no issue with that because his 10s will probably cover it up. So can, and he probably puts that, you know, best example onto the pitch. He knows what he's good at and he knows what he's not. And the, the best coaches with him will probably get the best out of him. And the players that are around him as well will also help him and contribute to what he's not good at. So obviously trying to take this back into the, the perspective, I think self-awareness is key and knowing what you're good at and knowing what, you know, somebody else could be better at you at is, is, is key in growing in any area in the personal or in the professional. Yeah, right. I really, I really Should like we move that. on to the next yeah. question? Because there's, <laughs> there's literally 10 minutes left just come up. Yeah. So let's jump into um, opposed training or unopposed training, when and why. Um, who wants to kick this one off? This is a debate that I'm going to tackle someone at. So let's go. Exactly. Um, I think for me, unopposed training is only useful when you're developing technique, um, particularly in the foundation phase. But I, I'm a strong believer that it should be still built into a game-related practice. Because um, obviously, the key elements of leaving the foundation phase is being comfortable with the ball, your feet, um, having good receiving and passing skills with both feet, but being dominant in 1v1 situations. And I think if you can continuously use unopposed training drills or practices then you're not going to have that realism and players aren't going to be comfortable in 1v1 uh, situations so I think as long as it's quite a nice healthy balance both should be utilized but in the right way not bad like that go Griff you've already taken the moot off your way <laughs> no no um no I think I think um I think you're absolutely right Courtney and but um I think how I how I tend to play it depend on the age is I would probably build up the session where it would be uh, unopposed to start off with let them understand the practice um, and then maybe some half pressure maybe some shadow and then full pressure where um, where you can really uh, establish their movement straight away because if you go in at full pressure and they can't they couldn't even do it unopposed then it you know it, you're only uh, doing disjustice to the player so so yeah I would tend to 
to build up a practice, obviously a technical practice, um, unopposed, and then build it into. But I think it is age specific. Um, yeah. If I um, say if I put on a if I put on a bit of a warm up and everyone's got a football in a in a I don't know fifteen by fifteen box and everyone's dribbling around and everyone's avoiding obviously collisions would we call that opposed or unopposed just coming from the start working working through our session is unopposed opposed or unopposed sorry and I would call that unopposed Uh, what why yeah I would agree I would agree yes it's unopposed it's got obstacles it's got some realistic stuff so they have to um you know turn and, and change direction but it's for me that would be a, an unopposed functional practice and, yeah and yeah it's a good link between the two to be fair right because it's not not opposed because there's no threat of anyone taking the ball off them but there's more pressure on them to look after their own ball they might yeah be under pressure might force them to run out the area they might lose control of their ball but there's no one unless you've got very naughty kids who are going to just go and kick their other other person ball away. It's mm-hmm. kind of it's more opposed than a pool. It's not a hundred percent one way, zero another. I think it depends on the complexity of the task. Meaning, I think I, I agree with 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 Griff that depending on the complexity of the task, the age group because we might be talking about you know we could be talking about set pieces. And if we go into set pieces, ideally, gradually, the complexity of the task will get difficult to the realistic situation. But how we divide that complexity will be directly related to how opposed and unopposed, how passive or active the defending is in the task. So I would say, yes, um, I would say unopposed drills are great for me for warm-ups, like warm-up towards an activity or activating players into it but I wouldn't spend more than 10, 15, 20 minutes out of an hour and a half session on unopposed drills. That's just my take. Yeah, what about yourself, Moiting on, moiting, moiting on the, the, two, the two opposed and unopposed, I think, and it's probably crossover with Griff and uh, with Courtney around, depends on what session, what, what objectives you have within your session. Um, but moiting on and unopposed is around match realistic and is it realistic to the game? So whether, but then on the flip side of that, going fully straight on high press or fully opposed, where if the players or the team can't gain success from the practice, well, psychologically they're going to think they failed. They can't get through it. So it's developing and finding a balance between unopposed where they've got a very good understanding of the practice, but they're gaining success from that. But then, my my thinking around opposed, I think we need to have our players in opposed practices as much as possible, where there's actually decisions having to be made, um, and they're thinking quickly. And because I think if if we if we design practice unopposed and we spend too long on them, and then you play a game on a Saturday, and the team could go high press all over the pitch. Well, then it's not realistic of what they've been training during the week. So it's it's marrying up um, realistic training sessions to what's actually going to happen um, on match day. Yeah. I think building from, from what the three of you have said so far about, I think it's a good building block. It's a good starting point in introducing something new on your players. 
it's got to be kind of a first step and then you've got to be ready to progress it on because you want to kind of things if you do one v one getting them to finish you want them to kind of get that success first so they're not thinking about it much they're just thinking right i'll dribble towards goal i'll put it past the goalkeeper then you put a defender in kind of forcing them to make decisions making it more realistic and then they've got that oh crap i'm one v one against a defender and i've got to get can i go this way that way they're kind of like put on that spot to make them decisions quicker so i think it's a good it's a good way to give them the success at first and then challenge them more. I think you kind of tapped into it really nicely, really nice there, James, that kind of working along that practice spectrum, aren't we? That especially I've coached it under six this year and I know James has done it in La Manga as well, that, you know, that at the start we get them in and it's just so, you know, it's block practice completely. You know, they've got a ball, there's no opposition, loads of repetition of can they, you know, dribble and dribble through cones, scoring a goal. Can they do it 10 times or, you know, whatever it is. And then gradually, you know, it might be six months later, make it a bit more varied, you know, you have to score past the goalkeeper and then it's completely random. Can they score in a match or in a little 1v1 situation and kind of work up that that spectrum and I think you're on to a winner. I'm going to take it in the other direction and go with professional players. So, okay, we probably mostly um, spend our time with youth players. But once those players have got the understanding of a lot of drills, a lot of practice, and you're with the end product, I do believe in unopposed practice more so because I think it's like camp, like marginal gains. This is the way I put it. It's kind of like in each area, the, the, the differences are so slight that, and we have so much time. And obviously the, the quality of the facilities in a professional level where I do believe like, but the unopposed situations for me in grassroots, you know, you do them at home, you do them in the park, you go with your dad and shoot at the goal, you go with your dad in the garden, you do kicky-ups. I mean, that should be learned on the street. It should be learned in your backyard. You shouldn't be going to a group session to work on your kick-ups. You know, you, you bring that to the session, you bring that to the game. I think what's lost now is we have three training sessions a week and that's the only football that the kids play in the whole week. You know, what about the other hours that we've got or the other days that there's no football? There's a lot that can happen. And now I think in lockdown, actually, there's been a lot, a lot more training at homes, which could easily be implemented throughout the week, even if they've got one, two or three training sessions and a match at the weekend. Thanks again for listening to the Coaches Room podcast. To express an interest in taking part as a guest in a future episode, send an email to thecoachesroomemail at gmail.com. Use the subject virtual roundtable and include a bit of background on yourself, who you are, where you're from and what age group you coach. Let's get back to the second half of the episode. Enjoy. Break and we're just talking about uh, unopposed and opposed training. Um, I'm going to give the word over to Graham. Graham, what do you think about unopposed and opposed training? Um, my, my thoughts on on the, the the two subjects is as what we try and do is in Ireland the ideal scenario for us is try and be try and have our players in an opposed environment as much as possible where there's a decision making process having to be to be made. Um I I can see benefits around the unopposed practices, whether it's patterns of play, maybe to register the idea in, in young players' heads and 
maybe painting pictures for them, but we try and work a pose as much as possible because it's realistic to the game that they're going to play. Um, so what we don't want to try and get to is developing training practices or developing training sessions that are unrealistic to the scenario that the players will face on a Saturday or Sunday. So it's putting them into them decision-making environment as much as possible um, that they're going to face on a Saturday or Sunday. I'm going to get, I'm going to throw out a quick question and try and want everybody to answer just with a number. Don't go into too much of detail. How much time do you spend on the warm up? Um, my my players do their own warm up. Um, I give them sort of the responsibility for that, um, and they get around about seven eight minutes. Seven um, or eight and then minutes. I'll, yeah, so into the training session, they're expected to be there 15 minutes beforehand, and as soon as they're booted up, they then crack on with their warm-up. Um, okay. But about about 78 minutes after training's officially start, I'll then introduce my practices. Okay, interesting. Griff, what about yourself? Um, so at the at Yeovil Academy... I've sometimes got a strength and conditioning coach. Uh, the sessions are two hours, even for under 13s. They're, they're two wow. hours long. Yeah, so, um, so we can afford to, to have a, a good 30, up to 30 minutes on activation, uh, making sure they're mobilized, the joints are working all right, and then move to stuff with the ball that kind of comes under um, a warm-up as such. With my army under 23s, again, I've got a fitness coach who would – who would take um, take the activation for about twenty to twenty five minutes? I love the fact that you you talk about activation because is is a, a fine line behind warm up and then going into a drill and then warm up activating the players fully and then going into a drill. What about yourself, Graham? Yeah, I'd walk off again. It depend on what what age group, what, what team you're working with. Ideally, we walk off maybe around 15 minutes. Uh, now, doing a warm-up with an under-19 team or a reserve team is completely different to working with 12, 13, 14. Like, I think, my, my thinking around 12, 13, 14, especially younger age groups, is introducing the ball as much as, as soon as possible. Um, so that it's ball mastery uh, related rather than dynamic stretches and there's no ball involved so just it probably it probably goes back to what we said earlier on around unopposed and opposed especially working with younger players get the ball in as, as quickly as possible um, but we I do try and work off that 15 minute window right yeah probably looking around 20 minutes um, roughly 10 five, 5 to 10 minutes just on their own with the ball, getting them moving, obviously working with the younger ones, just getting them moving as much as they can, getting the heart rate going, quick two, two three-minute drink, and then they're straight into some small-sided games, just some match play before them going into a part practice or a bit of a, a, a kind of phase of play. You would put, you would, you put the match before? Yeah, so we do, um, oh, like I said, we do small-sided games for about 10, 10, 15 minutes before the session, well, the part practice starts, and then after... That, that half an hour, 40 minutes where we have them doing a, a part practice, they, that, they'll then go back into these small-sided games and maybe try and implement what they've learned or you know, just go into the small-sided games for the engagement side of, well, aspect of, of the game. 
Okay. Okay, Jamesy. Yeah, I'm, I'm much the same as Rye because we're working similar age groups like Rye's with under sixes and under eights, under nines. They don't really need the same type of warm up as as Griff says and Graham says. A under 13, 14, 15 player, they don't really need the stretches and the same activation stuff. So I do the whole part whole. We'll come in and as soon as they get here, uh, we'll play a little game first. So it might be a small sided game, it might be a, a full game. So they just play a normal game as their little warm up to get them moving, get them thinking, and then they come in and we start the part of the session that we're working on. Definitely makes me laugh the way you see some of the you know, under sixes, under sevens doing all these dynamic stretches and warming up like pros, or trying to warm up like, like pros anyway, just a waste of time. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to see, like, depending on the circumstances, the, the player level, I think also the amount of time that you might have as well might affect the situation. So it, over here in Spain, we've got a limited amount of time. Some sessions are an hour long, some sessions are three quarters of an hour long, some, you know, some sessions are along with throughout the week so how much you know how much pitch you have as well you, you might have to do your warm-up in a small area before you you can get onto the pitch um so it, i think it depends on a lot of circumstances as well if you've got the luxury to have a two-hour session like griff um you, you can go into detail the activation can be between fun games as well including when not including the ball i think it depends on the circumstances of the age of the of, of, of the group and also where and how much time you actually have for the session um, will also, you know, be, you can be more relaxed about it. Or if you have an hour, then you might need to try and get, you know, seven, eight, nine minutes and then use the 50 minutes that you have. Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. And we're going to go straight into the last question, which is how many... I'm just going to add a little bit on, Harry. Just oh, sorry, Daisy. Go, go, go. Right I think the big thing, like you say, is the plate where you've got available for training. So like Courtney says, she's looking that a players get there 15 minutes early and they've got a bit of area, whether it's a, a lap around the pitch, whether it's a little corner to do some stretches. Whereas when I'm training, it's a current indoor 3G facility where there's not much room around the outside. There's normally two sessions going on. So they kind of come and then they stand on the side. They want to kick a ball around. It goes on the pitch and then they get told to get off by the other coaches. It totally depends on where you've got available. And uh, we've got an outdoor 3G as well, where it comes to about five minutes before the end of the session. And the coach on the side is kind of looking at his watch, trying to hurry you up to get off so that he gets as much of his one-hour session as possible. Yeah, it's one of them, isn't it? Instead of like trying to understand each other with a cool-down and a warm-up, I'll like do mine on a quarter and give you a quarter the next day, vice versa. Yeah. You end up having a, <laughs> a riot with, <laughs> with a fellow coach. <laughs> So people finish at a session and they've got 500 cones out, they've got three mannequins, they've got poles, everything. And oh, the coaches with the 500 cones and they're not even in it's, line. It's two minutes oh. before my session and you've got to get all your players out, you've got to get the balls out, you've got to get everything picked up. It's, going to it's be like a minefield, isn't it? You know, it's kind of bloody hell, man. Like a runway. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm like? Okay, is anybody else who wants to add something before we go on to... Um, the last question. No? Okay, so how many positions should a player play in one match? Okay, so what I think, Jamesy, if you want to just explain this question. Yeah, so I was looking at it more specifically from a foundation phase point of view in terms of they play five aside, they play seven aside, they play nine aside. We can kind of get away with giving the players 
two, three, four positions maybe is in a game. Just kind of looking at it in terms of at what point does that become too many for them? When does it start having negative effects on them, especially as they grow? So open the floor up. Does anyone have any any views? Anything that you do? I think that me and you, Jamesy, we kind of touched on it the other night, didn't we? That um, when we were talking about it, that you know, giving them say if they play five, six aside, that you know, if you give them four or five positions for the time that they're on, they for a forty-minute match, they may be a sub as well, so they may be on for 35, 30 minutes. And if you're swapping them, giving them five positions, that works out about every six minutes. You're changing their position. You know, if you're talking about kind of cognitive overload, the thinking within six minutes they've gone from I've got to defend. You know, I can't let this ball go in to then being up front where it's now I've got to actually try and put the ball in the goal and then going out wide, then into the middle again and then going to the back, then I'm off again. You know, can it be a bit too much of a, a chaotic rush for them? Yeah, I think we I think we we touched on it last was it last week or was it another call? Um <clears throat> when there's transferable like a defender wants to win the ball back, obviously stop the other team from scoring. If they then move to striker they're just defending from further forwards and they might get more goals. But when it goes from being a centre-back to a left midfielder to a goalkeeper, the messages are so different that we're trying to give. So it kind of, it does benefit them long-term, I think. It gives them more opportunities when they get to the older age groups. But like you say there, right, within one game, if they're playing six minutes in one position, really get them a chance, are they? I think, I think kind of looking at that as well, you know, it, take your example as well, Jamesy, where you've gone, you know, the kid's at centre-half for six minutes, he's gone to left mid and you've given him loads of detail on on defending, you know, you might be really working hard with him during the match and then he's gone to left mid and all of a sudden, you know, he's kind of left out left out the picture in a way to his own, to his own experience on the left mid. You know, his head's going to be all over the place from one minute he's, you know, Command style barking. I love I love play. doing that. I love putting a, a player in a position just so he realizes what he needs to do or what I his think, teammates do. <laughs> I think kind of the the approach though that he's he's gone from this you know kind of experience of everyone he's talking to me all the time to then all of a sudden on the left mid he's like he's not telling me what to do I don't know what to do and then you know panic bells panic panic alarms going off and and that kind of thoughts. What, Griff, else Griff, come on, come on, Griff, come on, Griff. <laughs> I think for me, like the foundation phase is is all about exploring um, different positions. Obviously, the 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 main emphasis on the foundation phase for me is just mastering that ball, um, understanding how to be good in a one v one, defending uh, and attacking. And like you said there, I think when I was a when I was coaching a grassroots in the foundation phase, it was I was more inclined to if I was going to switch the player in different positions, I'd be more inclined to, to, to make him next week. He's going to play left midfield. Um, so he has longer time. So it's not six minutes when he doesn't know what, you know, he doesn't know where he is. It would be more, uh, more time and you can speak with him in the breaks. Um, you can coach him on the side if you need to. And they've at least got more time and more time to showcase themselves and learn that position as opposed to throwing him in for three minutes because you don't know who's playing where and you've made so many changes as a coach. You don't know where's where. But I think to to look at the foundation phase, it's just all about exploring. Can he, can the, he or she defend? Can they attack? Are they good in 1v1s? Can they play in all different positions? And then once they get to the, the YDP phase, um, 
the youth development phase is that's when we start honing on where we think they're going to be. So, so for me with the 13s, I've got players now that they've got a primary position and a secondary position. Some of them have got a tertiary position or whatever it's called, um, a third position. And they don't look too far off the same, you know. If it's a centre forward, he can probably play out wide or, or as a, an attacking midfielder. Um, the full-back can play full-backs, centre-back or uh, right midfield. So they don't, not, not saying that a right-back couldn't play centre-forward, but they, you can understand by the youth development phase now where they're going to play. So you can start seeing them. And the biggest question mark is if you're going to offer them a scholarship, where are they going to play? Because if you're, if you're saying, I'm going to take him on to potentially be a pro, he needs to have a nailed-on position at this point. And you start to see that come 14, 15. Go on, Paul. No, go on. Just a little, I got a little story, actually. So I went against the grain a little bit with, with an 11-year-old, 11, 12-year-old. 11, and he's my own son. Um, so he was... Here uh, we go. <laughs> he was, oh, uh, I love these stories. Yeah, so he um, an eye for goal from from an early age, and uh, where his 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 sort of link up play and his, his technical ability in tight areas wasn't great, and it was an area for improvement that carried on going. But instead of working on that, and I've always been his grassroots coach, and I just I'm, I sort of honed in on his super strength or strength, and I made that a super strength. So I made him excellent in front of goal, eleven, twelve, up until under thirteens, and he was. He was repetition. It was he understood if the goalkeeper was coming out, when to lob him, when to take it round him. Is it one touch finish? Is it two touch? One v one dominant. You know, I was putting him in one v two situations in and around the box, and he was he was having to be put in a position where he'd get himself out and get a shot on goal. Uh, fortunate enough, he got scouted for a pro academy, uh, and on his debut, he scored six in his first game under thirteens. He was on an eight-week trial. They signed him within seven days. And four weeks later, he got called up to play for Wales and he scored on his first touch. So I'm not saying, I'm not saying that you know, all of this would have happened, but I, I've, I sacrificed uh, the all-round player, making him play as the left-back and the right-back. I just made him a great centre-forward. Um, whether that's right or wrong, uh, he's now still learning how to be a good technical player, so how to link up play, but the the foundations that he's got and how I looked at the centre forward profile. Number one for all of us, I'm sure, is to score. Can your centre forward score goals? Um, so that's how I measure centre forwards. Number one attribute: can they score goals? Number two: defend from the front. You know, number three: probably create and link up. So my attitude to that was, I wanted players to be more position specific from the top end of the foundation phase. So going into 11, 12, that's, that's how early I, I personally started getting players into them positions because you see uh, academies and, and, and stuff now, you end up with a James Milner. I call him a James Milner where they're just quite good at, at everything, but they're never a master. I mean, we can't even say now, where was James Milner's best position? He played up front, he played on the wing, he played right back, he played centre midfield. I don't know, but if maybe somebody made him an excellent centre forward or sacrificed that time, he may be excellent in one position. But um, that was my attitude to it. And, and I just thought I'd give you that story. 
Well, he's kind of James Milner. I think he's, he is who he is because of the de- determination and understanding of the game and his work ethic. And he's not worried. He understands the game and that's one of his um, attributes that, that maybe in other areas he doesn't have. And um, I think there's a player like that in a, in, in a lot of teams, not just, not just in James, James Milner. And some of the mental aspects of a player and physical conditioning aspects of a player can make them a pro. They don't have to be, um, you know, good looking as players um, to, be, to make pro. I mean, he wins, if I'm not mistaken, he wins most of the fitness tests of the whole best European team in the world. That's got to mean something. And mm. he's able to make, I think it was eight assists or nine assists in when they won the Champions League or the year before that, when they got to the final. He was one of the top assist makers of, the, but it's just not nice to look at. He got megged by Messi and he got, you know, done, but he doesn't care. That's not his attribute. So I think there's an area for all types of different players. If, if your son has decided himself that he wants to become a striker and, he, and, and that's what he loves and that's what he enjoys doing, that's fantastic. He didn't, have, he didn't, a, have, a, he didn't have a choice. <laughs> well, that's what it sounds like. <laughs> anyway, um, for me, moving. For me, it's. it's it's when they're, uh, when they're under sevens or some, or they're just starting, they're under six or under sevens, and their parents say, why are you playing them? Why are you playing them defence? He's going to be a striker. Yeah. Or why, <laughs> why are you playing them up front? He's going to be a defender. I had a chat with, I can't remember who it was now, but I think it was from my dissertation at university, and they said, on coaching, they said, if you were to say to one of the parents, what's your kid going to get in his GCSEs? They'd be like, I don't have a clue. Why do you ask who's that? But if I said, what position is your kid going to be when he's 14, 15, 16 years old? It's the same type of question. They might uh, become great defender, But if they don't have the chance, they're never going to show that. There's loads of it. I think we touched on it last week in the last episode. There's loads of examples of players who came through at a different position to where they play now. I think, I think a great example of that is, is Gerard Made his debut for, and, and played a full season at right-back for Liverpool. Um, and then went, went to be on went to be arguably the country's best midfielder for, for 10 years um, and the rest possibly. So I think it does relate to that. And kind of looking at it from as much as I don't, don't like the game, football manager is a great analogy for it that, you know, if you ever see it on like the team sheets or whatever, if you click on a player and it says like his specific position would be like a dark green and then maybe another position he can play is like an amber colour. So, you know, like he's got that versatility, right? he's really strong, he's a green at centre mid and then he's he's maybe an amber at right mid and, and an amber at, at number 10 and I think having that versatility about you as a player is, is so important Imagine getting to the point where you've got a team of like Ryan says a team full of players who have got green everywhere that would be it would be ideal wouldn't it I think as much as I hate them Harry Man United I think that's something they did well a few years ago every time I watched Man United play Newcastle it was, was a striker I think they still do it now as well to be fair they've got a striker left wing, right wing, number 10, and they just always change. It was so hard to defend against because one moment you're the centre-half, you're Martin Rashford, the next it's Martial. It's just constantly changing because they've got that, they've been given the freedom to change around and get used to different positions, I think. It can only help. I think, I think especially at the, just my opinion maybe, especially at the, the phases obviously are different in Ireland than they would be in the UK around the foundation. It's, very similar. But my big thing, I think going back to the initial question around 
should a player play a number of positions in one match? I think that's very complex for a young player. So I would agree with what Ryan mentioned and James mentioned earlier around whether you deal with it in blocks, whether it's four or five-week blocks. Where, But my big thing on it is that a lot of coaches pigeonhole players too early. So you might have a big, tall player at under eight. Oh, well, he must be a centre-back. But then... Yeah. They just pigeonhole him to be a centre-back and he doesn't experience the other positions. So, but then he will only be able to master the defending side of the game. Where Great. Do you think that's because of at such a young age, we've got so kind of little the big obviously the big standout is the physical aspect you know like you've just said he's a you know he's he's a big lad let's put him either up front if he's quick or you know if he's if he's a big lad let's put him at the back he can do a good job do you think it's just purely down to the, the physical kind of observation I think, I think initially Ryan, and I think it's a, it's a it's a very good question but I think initially what coaches look at and it kind of frustrates me a little bit where they look at the physical aspect and say right well he must be a big tall left-sided centre-back but then that's maybe because he's maybe just developed physically a lot earlier than other players. But then I think if we're talking about player development and developing players, I think long-term that big, tall eight-year-old will fall behind in the overall yeah. aspect of a player. And that's what yeah. I think. I think it's vitally, vitally important to expand make players experience all aspects of the game and I'm not pigeonholing them to be a left back but for me a young player should have an experience of how to defend how to attack so they need to know the, the four functions of the game and I think if you pigeonhole them just to be a centre back well they're very very rarely going to master attacking in the final third because they won't pass the halfway line yeah yeah I completely agree with that Kind of pet, pet hate of mine. Obviously, when when a player comes in, and, and some of the coaches will say like, "How big's his dad? His dad's here as a fan. You know, he, his dad's not kicking the ball. <laughs> you know, his kid's eight. You know, as much as size, like you're saying, Graham. Like size doesn't sometimes matter because you know, if his dad might be six foot four, it doesn't mean he can't play. He can play football. <laughs> Yeah, but that's what I mean. I think they'll all develop physically. Every player will develop differently. And I think, I think I just, I'm think just passionate around, especially young players, give them an experience of different positions because mentally you're, you're, you're challenging them as well rather than leaving them in a comfort zone of being a centre-back every single week. But I think, and I think Griff said it earlier around, especially when they get to the youth development phase, they kind of, they kind of mould themselves into that position. Um, and then you can really, from youth development phase to, to, the, to the professional phase, I think you can really hone in on the player profile and what you actually want from your centre-back across them two phases. But I think to pigeonhole them into one position very early, I think could have a very negative effect on the player development later on. Yeah, I think um, another thing that's quite quite common with, with what we do and a lot of academies do is um, is bio-banding. So we put them into groups, not necessarily by uh, chronological age. It's it's where they fit in their, in their sort of growth maturation. So you might have, if it's a technical practice, then we, we put them in technical groups. And in that technical group, you might have a 13-year-old um, in with, with some 15-year-olds. And the 13-year-old might, actually be one of the best technical players in that group 
if the practice is unopposed, then it's it's irrelevant how big and strong they are. Um, Diverting a, a little bit off the questions of how many positions you should play in a match, but it it, it backs up um, it backs up the comments there from you, Graham. Is that that eight year old that's that's a giant at under eight? He's only missing out on on other attributes because, like you said, it's he's just going to play as a defender and and get used to defending. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think another 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 good one is. Is is being not being afraid to put them in in groups, whether it's growth maturation. I know it's quite frowned upon on grassroots. Oh, we can't play up and down, but there is just so many benefits because it it mitigates that eight year old who's six foot. You know, put him in with the under tens and and see how he gets on, and maybe play him as a midfielder, yeah. um, for example. Yeah, Courtney, what, what do you even think on that point? Sorry, go on, right. Uh, yeah, I was just going to ask Courtney, what do you kind of yeah. think around this this kind of issue? Um, I think for my under eights, I think it's really important for them to be exposed to all of the positions, um, especially for their football memory. Um, I think a big one as well is is on goalkeepers. So you might have a kid who does want to play in goal, which is every coach's dream, considering it's usually the op- opposite way around. But I think the way that goalkeepers play now with like the current... Um, fashionable playing style, so to speak. They need, they need to have that overall uh, footballing brain and, and have the technical ability of an outside player. Um, so I think rotation for me in the foundation phase of minor eight is really important. Um, and I think as long as they're doing it with a smile on their face, then we're winning as their coach and they're, they're still developing as players. Yeah, I really like that. Quite a nice... Uh... Way to finish on that, Graham. What were you about to say? Sorry, Paul. You know, just something what Griff mentioned there around challenging the players for that big, tall eight-year-old that could maybe play. And I think it's even a terminology some coaches use. It's it's nearly a, it's a negative effect on psychological point of view from a player. So if I'm saying to an under eight, you're playing down, but he's thinking straight away that's negative. Whereas you, yeah, I you think, think sorry, Graham. Was a there was a there was a, a we had a, this kind of discussion last week as well and a, a great terminology that came up was kind of playing along the, the yeah. kind of the age groups and I really like that. Yeah, so one thing like and that's why I try to because you always want to try and come across positive with a player. So if you say you're playing down, they're saying, well, what have we done wrong to play down? So yeah. something that I use with young players is you just play across. Yeah. So you you play for the same football club. So you just play across with the under nines, or you play across with the under tens, rather than up or down. Yeah it, yeah, it doesn't. You know, you're not getting any bad kind of messages across. Then are you? It's almost kind of a positive reflection of you know, I want you to go and play your same football. You, you're just in a different environment. Nothing's really changed, has it? Another thing I I use with with players playing down as well is I might say to an under 14s, you're going to come down to the under 13s, and I want you to be the the leader. I want you to to mentor. Um, this younger group and this is one of the reasons why you're in there but also I want to give you more more time on the ball which I think you might get in the under 13s um, and, and they thrive on it you're going to give them better minutes because they are playing down they might not like it the parents won't like it but if they see benefits that oh, I'm going to go and be the leader I'm going to mentor the, the little ones um, and I'm going to get good game time and I'm going to be hopefully one of the best players on the pitch Interesting. We have, I must say, we have, to, we have taken it away from the question, but at the end of the day, that's what we're here for. 
Um, just just before we, we we close this call, um, I just want to say thank you to everybody for being um, honest with your opinions. Um, it's been very nice listening to you all, which I think is a huge trait for any coach that might be out there. Learn to listen. Um, everybody loves to talk, especially when we're we're coaches. I think listening is is equally important. Well, thank you very much, guys. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me as well. I've really I've really enjoyed it. It's been really insightful. Thank you. Thanks, lads. Thanks. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the experience. Feel free to leave any feedback on our social media platforms at Coach Cosson, at Training underscore RM, and at Pogue underscore Coaching. Once again, thanks for listening to the Coach's Room. See you next time.